Okay, it's Sunday morning. I'm your podcaster, Anne Althouse, reading my blog, which is Althouse. Also, if you want to go there, it's althouse.blogspot.com. And it's Sunday morning, so the everyone's focusing on what was on Saturday Night Live. How did, the, uh, how did Saturday Night Live handle the vice presidential debate? And I think they did really well, even though I read an article over in the New York Post, SNL, somebody screwed up the VP debate fly. Uh, I didn't agree with that. I wrote, finally, the steaming pile of insect politics I've been waiting for. I saw that the New York Post hated it, but I, an intense fan of the Jeff Goldblum version of The Fly, think it's truly great. And I give you the embedded video of the cold open that was on Saturday Night Live last night. And the guy in the post objected to the use of Kerry as Joe Biden combined with Jeff Goldblum characterized it as this strange, aspiring 1980s East Village performance art piece. Oh, like it was too sophisticated for the TV audience because it used a very popular horror movie. That made it arty, like a performance piece from the distant past of the 1980s. Well, it's true that The Fly was from the 1980s, but come on, people know the great horror movies in American movie history. That's like saying, you know, The Exorcist is a, um, an, obscure, an obscure reference, or um, uh, the, uh, now I'm trying to th immediately think of a 60s horror movie. What's a classic 60s horror movie that you can assume everyone knows? I would say Psycho, but I don't consider that horror. I'm going to say, um, huh. Weird. Can't think of it. 50s, Godzilla, right? Of course, they remake it so that you don't forget it, but uh, horror. Them, the, uh, uh, what's the one where the, with the invasion, the day the invade, oh, can't remember it. There weren't that many uh, horror movies back in those days, but there's so many horror movies. People love horror movies. Come on, you got to know The Fly. The Fly from the 50s, or was it the early 60s with Vincent Price? That's also quite, quite great. I, I prefer the more uh, uh, florid, exaggerated Fly of the 1980s. With Jeff Goldblum is so great in that. And to see Jim Carrey imitate Jeff Goldblum it's great. You know, there's not enough uh, impersonations done for comic effect uh, these days. Um, but uh, they, they used to be much more popular in the old days. We, there would be famous impersonators whose whole comic act was just impersonating people like uh, Edward G. Robinson and, and Jimmy Cagney and so on. But uh, I've, I've seen um, Jim Carrey impersonate Broderick Crawford, but people don't even know who Broderick Crawford is anymore. Maybe Jim Carrey is an old man imitating movie stars people don't know anymore. But people know Jeff Goldblum, come on. Uh, back to the post. I'm getting carried away podcasting, and I'm really just trying to read this post. That guy in the post objected to the use of Jim Carrey as Joe Biden combined with Jeff Goldblum, characterized it as this strange, aspiring 1980s East Village performance art piece. I'll just guess he doesn't know the movie The Fly. How can you have missed the fly? And I mean, the Jeff Goldblum fly. Nothing against the Vincent Price fly. That's also great, but come on. If you're gonna review American satire, there's a certain baseline of experience you need to have in your brain. Kudos to SNL. Every one of the actors did a fine job and the material was even politically balanced. You know, if you're on, if you're on the Trump side, you're gonna think, SNL is stacked against you, and all they do is fawn over Biden and Kamala Harris. But that's not true. They are mocking Kamala Harris, and they're mocking Joe Biden. So, you know, the stock idea that they're only good for the liberals and they only attack the conservatives, that wouldn't be funny enough. I mean, that's the main criticism of them, is that their, their political bias makes them less funny. If political bias made them more funny, that'd be fine. It's a comedy show. I don't care. Put on a, a conservative comedy show if you can. I think it's better to attack all of the seekers of power, all of the politicians. I think it's a better comic position to rise above the whole thing and look down on them all. That's what I try to do. So, uh, um, but uh, 
I think Saturday Night Live last night, the vice presidential debate, the cold open last night, did a pretty darn good job of getting at both sides. It was fairly politically balanced. So it starts off showing the debate and having uh, Mike Pence and Kamala Harris satirized. Uh, lots of Maya Rudolph doing the facial expressions that Kamala Harris has been criticized for overindulging in. Um, and then it switches. It becomes surreal at one point because of the fly. I mean, the actual debate became surreal because of the fly. So they use the trope of um, the fly being Joe Biden, that uh, the Joe Biden character got into the transporter and there was a fly in there with him, as in the movie, and then he comes out a fly, Joe Biden the fly. And we see uh, the close-up of uh, Mike Pence's hair with Jim Carrey cavorting about on it being uh, Joe Biden combined with a fly. Come on, how can you not like that? That was great. He did a great job. And, and, you know, you have to act like part man, part fly, you know, with the sort of buzzing quality and so on that Jeff Goldblum did. And then Jim Carrey had to do it not just as Joe Biden and a fly, but also as Jeff Goldblum. He had to combine three things, fly, Biden, and Goldblum. Come on. That was, well, he should win an Emmy for that or something. I mean, that was a difficult task. And they also had Kenan Thompson show up as Herman Cain, the reincarnate, Herman, Herman Cain reincarnated as a fly. So there's two ways to get to be a fly. And there was a second fly on Mike Pence's head. And Kenan Thompson did an excellent job of pretending to be a fly and actually looking a pretty lot like uh, Herman Cain. It was extraordinary. So uh, I thought that was all quite good. The only thing I'd change, back to the post, now I'm reading the post again. The only thing I'd change is the color of Kate McKinnon's lipstick. She played the moderator Susan Page in pretty bright red lipstick. But Susan Page had on a color that made me laugh. And I went and found the video of the debate on C-SPAN and did a screenshot so that you could see the color of lipstick Susan Page had on. And uh, Susan, you know, that color I was laughing about when I was watching the debate. I don't know, maybe that's obscure and overly feminine observation for some of you, but uh, I thought that the lipstick color seemed like <laughs> what kind of decision-making process was involved there. It was sort of dark and dark red and sort of brownish dull red. It looked, it made her look very stodgy and old and um, like someone from the past, the distant past, uh, the sort of obscure past where people wore lipstick like that. And I said, just a little missed opportunity. They perked Susan Page up a bit. And Kate McKinnon is already way perked up compared to the hilariously dull Susan Page. Anyway, other than that, excellent. Thanks, SNL. And then I added the clip from The Fly, the clip I just love from The Fly when uh, here's the very best thing in The Fly, the part about insect politics. And by the way, Kate McKinnon would make a great Gina Davis if the Gina Davis part had found its way into the sketch. And I quote that line. I've quoted it many times on the blog. I've had an insect politics tag on the blog for a long time. I love to get a chance to use insect politics, and this is as direct as it ever gets. And the quote that I've always remembered that I just loved when I originally saw the movie in the theater in the 80s. Have you ever heard of insect politics? Neither have I. Insects don't have politics. They're very brutal. No compassion, no compromise. We can't trust the insect. I'd like to become the first insect politician. You see, I'd like to, but I'm afraid. I'm saying I'm, saying I'm an insect who dreamed he was a man and loved it. But now the dream is over and the insect is awake. I'm saying, I'll hurt you if you stay. He's talking to his girlfriend, Gina Davis. They had a very nice relationship until he got excessively fly-like. I guess one could do a feminist or relationship analysis of that movie and say that it's really just about how people relate to each other. You think you have a nice boyfriend. You think he's a real man, but then uh, uh, over time, you uh, the insect awakens in him. and he has, a, he has a dark side. He has a bad side. And you realize he'll hurt you if you stay. But, uh, but politics, what does it say about politics? Uh, insects don't have politics. I'd like to become the first insect politi politician. 
One thing you might think there is, no, I think all the politicians are insects. I'm up here looking down on them. Uh, they're lowly, lowly human creatures. They're the, they're the worst of, of the humans. And, you know, that might help you deal with the election, with all of the disappointment of the low quality of the choices that we've got right now. You might think, uh, yeah, you know, it's not really the best human beings who go into that sort of work or who could even do it if they tried. Uh, they'd probably fail if they were, um, if they were lofty, uh, subtle, complex human beings with great virtues. It probably wouldn't work, you know. And, and that can explain a little of why Donald Trump is president and why uh, we don't have much of a, an alternative to Don, Donald Trump right now. So uh, I try not to get too, uh, too, too unhappy about that. I saw that somebody wrote in the comments. I'll name the person in the comments. Maybe people like to be named in the podcast. But um, uh, Lucid Ideas said quoting insects don't have politics, ants have politics, bees have politics, they organize, build together, sacrifice, herd animals, aphids, and have symbiotic relationships with other organisms, and they all have a version of Hillary Clinton directing the daily activities of the colony. They have politics, I guess he means the queen, the queen is like Hillary Clinton, but you know, the queen isn't directing the daily activities, the queen is as locked into her role as they all are. I said, um, no, they have social behavior programmed into them. There's no way the ants and bees are gonna vary their idea of how things should be, uh, about how things should be done, and any kind of mode of resolving what to do differently going forward. There's no mind involved. The queen isn't uh, ruling. I mean, we might say queen because we're looking on and we're imagining that happening. But the queen is just as locked into her reproductive role. It's really the ultimate in female subordination. There's just only one doing all the reproducing, but she's been selected by uh, mechanistic circumstances to have to serve that role. And the others have to serve her, not because they like her or because she's ordering them to and motivating them to. It's all just programmed in. So no politics. and. I wouldn't even call it a society. I think that that's just uh, imposing a human template on the whole thing. But uh, so I, I do think that uh, Seth Brundle, that's the name of the good Jeff Goldblum character, Seth Brundle would be the first in insect politician. Unfortunately, he just uh, fell apart and died. A spoiler alert, Spell, uh, you know, he really couldn't survive in the horrible condition he was in. Parts of his body were falling off. That really uh, got to me when I saw it in the theater. There's a scene where he opens his medicine cabinet and inside it are body parts that he's, that have sloughed off. I think we see something coming off like a, maybe a fingernail or something like that. And he puts it inside the medicine cabinet. He opens the medicine cabinet to put it in there. And we can see there are other things, other things that have fallen off him. Uh, I was, uh, Groaning out loud. I mean, I, I don't think I ever saw a horror movie where I was actually uh, out loud reacting, reacting to stuff. So the next post is about Greta Thunberg. I'm quoting something she said in... Um, Greta Thunberg, only people like me dare ask tough questions on the climate. And that's from The Guardian. So quote is, people like me who have Asperger's syndrome and autism, who don't follow social codes, we are not stuck in this social game of avoiding important issues. We dare to ask difficult questions. It helps us see through the static while everyone else seems to be content to role play. And I think it's uh, very interesting to have different kinds of minds, different kinds of points of view. You know, you don't want to be dominated by one, but having different minds in the mix. There are different ways of seeing things. And the idea that a person with autism, which according to the article, she has autism, she's 17 now, um, they bring something to the conversation. I mean, you can't follow orders from other people, but uh, there's a big conversation. 
and she has something to say in her perception of it. She is avoiding social games. She thinks other people are role-playing and involved in social games. So she's aware that she doesn't do that, and she has then her point of view to add. And, uh, you know, she's used as a symbol, and other people may uh, regard her as some sort of prophet or as having special moral uh, sway, but uh, she's someone with an opinion, someone that studied it. She's very young, but apparently she's very good at picking up information from reading. This is in the body of the article about how she, uh, how, how good she is at uh, absorbing things, at least, and remembering things. This is from the article in The Guardian. Thunberg believes her condition helps her look at the world and see what others cannot or will not see. She dislikes small talk and socializing, preferring to stick to routines and stay laser-focused. And that's one way to be in this world. Um, There's no reason to see that as better or worse than what other people do, but there's a particular contribution she can make, she and other people with autism. Um, The idea of uh, rejecting a person like that is uh, clearly wrong just in terms of wanting to keep people with disabilities in the mainstream. But quite aside from disabilities, people have different minds, whether they're labeled uh, from particular disorders or conditions or or whatever. Um, People are individuals, and the particular sorts of minds that they have, for example, males versus females, um, are they different? Uh, People from different uh, places on Earth different from other people? Um, we can hear what they have to say. We can listen to what comes from their mind. And we can use it to the extent that uh, it seems right to us. So there's a contribution to be made. Um, people who don't like small talk, you know, there's a certain sort of person who doesn't like small talk and socializing, prefers to stick to routines and stay laser-focused. I mean, maybe I identify with that a little bit. Even though I don't think I'm at all autistic, I kind of think, if, if anything, I'm at the other extreme of having more emotion mixed into my thought rather than less. But uh, small talk and socializing, you either, can, that can be good, that can be bad, that can fit your sort of mind or not. Um, personally, I like routines, but, you know, what are routines? I mean, my routines may be quite different from someone who's really focused on routines, but... Uh, One person's routine is another person's uh, chaos. Anyway, uh, she prefers to stay laser-focused. Can't you tell from the way I'm talking in this uh, podcast that I like to stay laser? I'm pretty, um, I feel like I stay focused, but I think that she's talking about an extreme form of laser focus. I think there's a documentary about her, so maybe uh, one could see exactly how laser-focused that uh, laser focus is. Continuing with the article, and her ability to concentrate fiercely, concentrate fiercely, is acknowledged by her father, Svante Thunberg. Sorry if I'm not pronouncing that right. He says, she can read a book and remember everything in it. He says, ruefully, ruefully. Why would he say that ruefully? Why wouldn't he say it proudly? Maybe he says it ruefully. What is he ruling? Ruling has this idea of regret in it. Um, you know, uh, rue, uh, it, it has regret. So why would he say it ruefully? Maybe he says it ruefully because he himself can't read a book and remember everything in it. Maybe he's saying, I wish I could do that. But, uh, I, I'm going to guess that's what it really means. Not that he, he rues her, um, <laughs> her reading a book and remembering everything in them. And maybe he would like to see a daughter go out and play and have friends and do things with other people. Um, and, and so someone, a ch- you, you have a child who just reads, reads all the time and then remembers everything in it and then becomes, a, if she, what she's reading about is climate change and then uh, remembering all the details about climate change and feeling despondent about it and about being a kid in a world that's already ruined. Um, that could make him feel sad. I don't know why. Father Thunberg feels sad. Ruefully. Um, I used to edit 
manuscripts for someone who wrote fiction and would often use the word ruefully after he said or she said. And, um, you know, you, you can't use distinctive words too often. And so I, I once made fun of him for, for saying he said ruefully. And uh, I think I cured him of the, the use of the word. He probably never used the word again. I say ruefully, ruefully. Um, and then here's a quote from uh, Greta Thunberg. For many years, people, especially children, were very mean to me. I was never invited to parties or celebrations. I was always left out. I spent most of my time socializing with my family and my dogs. So see, she, she does have social needs. Um, she had them satisfied through her family and her dogs. She didn't really want to be with other people. So it's not like... Um, she wasn't social at all. It was just that her way of being was not was not understood or appreciated by the other children. So she was she was left out, and you know that can be a good lesson to all of us to uh, to think about the differences between people and to be inclusive. Although uh, you know, if you were having a party, you might be some some people you might think won't won't be good for the party. Uh, are not good party people. I mean, someone who would come and lecture you sternly about climate change probably wouldn't be much much fun. So I don't know why she was left out. And probably other children were left out also. Sometimes you feel like you're left out, but maybe everyone feels a little left out. Who knows? How left out are you? Or are you the one that's always included? You know, to always be included isn't necessarily a great benefit to you. Uh, how do you get out of doing the ones you don't want to do? You know, and if you don't make small talk, if you dislike the small talk, how are you going to do well at a party? And um, if you're going to make people feel bad for doing small talk, maybe they won't want you at their parties. Maybe, uh, maybe give, uh, maybe you're saying they don't credit you, but do you credit them? You know, I was uh, thinking about something that happened long ago where I made some small talk about something distinctive that ha had happened, a news event long ago. And um, I commented on it and was treated with uh, contempt by uh, certain people who I guess uh, thought that if we're gonna talk about the culture, it will be, we'll talk about, uh, you know, Chekhov and Dostoevsky and not, uh, and not Dr. Seuss, you know. Uh, if you said, uh, Dr. Seuss died, uh, they might look at you like uh, like you're an idiot uh, because you're speaking on a, a lower level than they're at. And uh, so, you know, if you want to be included in parties, maybe don't be so judgmental. Uh, get some feeling for what level the talk is at and uh, try to say some things that feel good to the other people. You know, think about if you read books and understand everything in the books, why not read books about how people socialize, uh, what the real value of small talk is? Maybe you could become included. Now, I'm saying that probably only to people who are not uh, autistic. I don't understand autism enough to, to say more than that. But if you really have a very different sort of brain where the value of small talk is just not available to you, well, I think you can still read about how it's important to other people and what role it plays. And you could understand small talk in a deep way and be able to socialize. But in any way, certain doors were closed to Greta Thunberg. She went through other doors. She found other ways to live, partly through reading books, partly through dogs, you know? How many of us uh, feel discouraged by social relations and, and turn to dogs? Boy, I just saw a, I, I thought about putting this on the blog, but I didn't. I don't think it should be given any more um, views, really. But I saw on Twitter, I saw a viral video of a woman who obviously had a serious, serious mental problem, but she was carrying a dog in a kind of abusive way, holding the dog up to its, under its front legs. And uh, a man had confronted her about it, and he continued to talk to her even though it was very apparent that she had some deep mental problems. And uh, she, got, she got more and more aggravated. And, of course, he realized he was getting 
some great viral video that people would want to see. And at some point, she just throws the dog at him. She throws the dog at the man. The dog becomes her projectile to throw at the man, and then the dog falls on the street on his back and then goes over to the man, and the man doesn't give her the dog back. It's not your dog anymore. He says, well, that's a viral video. Maybe you've seen it, but I declined to put that on my blog. But, you know, some people cling to their dogs. They switch to dogs when they actually have mental disabilities that prevent them from or that impair their relating to other people. And they, maybe you think dogs are better. There's some people who are willing to come out and say in public that uh, dogs are better than people and their relationships with dogs are better. Of course, the dog has no, no choice but to relate to the person who's purporting to own it. And uh, sometimes people throw their dog, throw their dog away, lose their dog like that. But uh, anyway, I said, meanwhile, Greta, who is not an American citizen, endorses Joe Biden. Oh, foreigners uh, in intermeddling uh, uh, um, in American politics. Is that really right? Shouldn't they stand back and let Americans decide? Or should we uh, hear from foreigners saying, who they think should be the next president. Maybe we should hear from those people. Take that into account. Don't you want to know who uh, foreign citizens would like to see as the American president? Um, I guess I wouldn't hesitate to express my opinion about who should win various elections in other countries. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, she said in a tweet, I never engage in party politics. But the upcoming US elections is above and beyond all that. Grammatical problem, but she, she's Swedish. From a climate perspective, it's very far from enough. And many of you, of course, supported other candidates, but I mean, you know, damn, just get organized and get everyone to vote, hashtag Biden. I'm not even sure that is an endorsement of uh, Biden. It just ends with hashtag Biden right after saying, just get organized and get everyone to vote. Um, she says she doesn't do party po politics. And, she, and then the center of it is from a climate perspective, it's very far from enough. What's very far from enough? I guess not engaging in party politics isn't enough. So she has to engage. And many of you, of course, supported other candidates. But I mean, you know, damn. Okay. All right, so um, that's uh, Greta Thunberg's opinion. Now, the next uh, piece is a, an article, Veteran Journalist Dies, from, dies After 50-Foot Fall on Maine Mountain. And the Maine Mountain is the tallest mountain in Maine, Mount Katahdin, which is the end of the Appalachian Trail. And uh, this man, Donald McGillis, who was 74, would climb that mountain every year. And that was something that he did. But, so this is not the case of someone taking a selfie and not watching where they're stepping and going tumbling off a cliff. This was someone who encountered weather conditions that were really quite awful. So um, from the article, which is in the New York Post, they were told hours earlier, he was, McGillis was uh, hiking the trail with his nephew, Paul McGillis, and it says they were told hours earlier to shelter in place upon calling 911 as temperatures plummeted below freezing. Well, you know, often people who are camping and go up in the mountains in New England can encounter very cold temperatures. And someone experienced doing that climb would have known that. Uh, but to, to find yourself up on the mountain and very cold, um, and then to call 911 to expect a rescue from the mountain, I think it's difficult to get rescued when you've gone up the mountain and encountered cold. I think that there, I can remember hiking in New England and seeing a trail you know, it's a warm day, and there's a trail about how cold it can be. I can remember reading the phrase, many have died. Um, and it says, and this is a quote from his son, they were literally worried about being blown off the mountain. So there was cold, and there was wind, and they were high on the mountain. 
the former longtime journalist, this is a quote from the New York Post, the former longtime journalist suffered chest injuries and a broken leg in the fall, which occurred at 3 a.m. Wednesday as he stood up and stepped away from the trail. He and his nephew were rescued some seven hours later, but McGillis died from his injuries at a hospital in Bangor. His son said, Paul was extraordinary and kept, in other words, the nephew was extraordinary and kept him going through the night. Uh, it was just heroic. McGillis climbed the mountain every year with a hiking group and was eager to make the trip up the 5,269-foot mountain with his nephew. You could hear the light in his voice. And uh, let's see, how old was the nephew? I didn't include that in the article, but uh, how old was the boy who stayed with him through the night? You can imagine what that might have been like. Um, I don't know if I see the age of the nephew in, in the article. Um, but uh, then the article, then the, the last thing I put in the post is, from the article is from his editor at the Eagle, which was a newspaper where he had worked. And the editor, Kevin Moran, said, McGillis regarded journalism as the noblest of professions, a newsman through and through. He loved breaking the news and demanded that journalists dig deep and investigate and report sides of the story the public wasn't getting. So he sounds like a, a noble person who uh, loved to hike, loved Maine, and uh, very sad to die like that. And it must have been a, a woeful night. And uh, his poor nephew, uh, well, I hope the, the nephew has some good memories and uh, some great uh, self-respect based on his uh, taking care of his uncle on his last day and uh, making it through that cold night. And uh, we'll see what happens to that, to that boy whose name is, uh, let's see, Paul. Paul. Um, McGillis. Hmm. That would have been a 74-year-old uncle and a young guy. Maybe, well, I'm going to say if the uncle was 74, you know, Paul was probably not a child. He, maybe he was a 50-year-old um, man. He probably wouldn't have been a child if that's your uncle, not your great-uncle. Um, in any case, I wish uh, more journalists were like that, but I bet even the journalists that I think are quite biased believe that they stand for the highest principles of journalism and believe in giving both sides and uh, going deep and so forth. I think that's a widely held uh, abstract principle. Uh, whether, wh whether it's actually done is another question altogether. Well, speaking of heroism, this is one with a, a happier ending involving childbirth. And this uh, is an article from Five Chicago Reports. A Loyola, this is about a law, uh, a law school graduate, a Loyola, Loyola University graduate took part of her bar exam while in labor, gave birth, and then finished the test. Brianna Hill, 28, was taking part one of the two-part test on October 5th when her water broke. The test was administered remotely this year amid the novel coronavirus pandemic. I started the second section 15 to 20 minutes in. I started having contractions, Hill said. So after your water breaks, you should go into labor somewhat soon after that, but not necessarily. You might, you might have to take uh, many hours uh, in the hope of going into labor. You'll have to give birth fairly soon, um, but uh, you, you don't immediately have... Uh, you're not necessarily immediately into labor. So um, she was in the middle of taking the first part of the two-part test when her water broke. So she keeps going, and then she goes into the second section, and 15 to 20 minutes in, she started having contractions. I had already asked for an accommodation. So, you know, even some of the commenters <laughs> thought the, she wasn't getting accommodations, but she was getting accommodations. She already had accommodations, I had already asked for an accommodation to get up and go to the bathroom because I was 38 weeks pregnant. And they said I'd get flagged for cheating. I couldn't leave the view of the camera. I was determined, Hill added. 
as to why she didn't stop the exam after showing signs of labor. After Hill finished day one of the exam, she and her husband, Cameron Andrew, eventually left for West Suburban Medical Center in Oak Park, Illinois. A few hours later, Hill and Andrew's first child, a boy named Cassius Philip Andrew, arrived weighing six pounds, five ounces. Meanwhile, Hill was still scheduled to finish part two of the exam the following day on October 6th. So the first part was October 5th, second part was October 6th. She goes into labor during part one on October 5th. After she finishes part one, she gives birth to the baby and uh, part two is still coming up the next day, day after the baby's born. October 6th, Hill said her midwife and hospital staff reserved a private room for her on the labor and delivery floor so she could complete the exam. The whole time my husband and I were talking about how I wanted to finish the test and my midwife and nurses were on board. There just wasn't another option in my mind. So notice, it wasn't that the testing authorities didn't offer her another option. It wasn't that she couldn't get an accommodation. It was that she didn't ask for anything else. She wanted to keep going. She finished the part two while in labor, presumably not terribly severe labor at that point. She had a uh, little boy after the test part one was over and she wanted to keep going. She wanted to get that part two done, get through the test. I took the rest of the test in there and I was even able to nurse the baby in between sessions. Obviously, I really hope I pass, but I'm mostly just proud that I pushed through and finished. And I've seen uh, in uh, some other blogs, blogs at Tax Law blog that this is amazing, amazing that the woman did this. But I'm taking a somewhat different tack and I'm doing this as someone who did have a baby during my third year of law school or, uh, with a C-section. And I finished, uh, the, I had the baby during spring break, so uh, that happened. I had a week that was already a week off, and then I took another week, and then I was back, and I finished law school. And, you know, I was, all of the difficulties of having a new baby, establishing breastfeeding, all of that sort of thing, uh, that goes on. And so here's my um, take on it. I said, this is what women do. It's nice to get a news story as if this is way off the norm, but I believe this is how women from time immemorial have fit pregnancy, childbirth, breastfeeding, and childcare into a life full of other work. And I'm saying this as someone who went through pregnancy in a C-section in my last year of law school. But congratulations to Ms. Hill. I can certainly see how having studied for the bar exam, she felt determined to get that thing done when the day arrived and not shift to the alternative task of rescheduling and continuing to keep all the minute memories of picky little doctrines alive in her head while she was losing sleep, caring for a newborn. And welcome to the world, little CPA. I noticed that she gave him CPA as his initials, like an accountant. Um, but uh, there's no accounting for initials. Check your initials when you, when you uh, maybe she wanted those initials, but I, I like the name Cassius. Cassius uh, Philip Andrew, nice name. And um, uh, so I, I really can see why, under the circumstances, getting that exam behind her was something she really wanted to do. And there were all these people supporting her doing it. They got her the room, and that was really cool. If she had said, no, I can't do it yet, then she would have had to do it later. Not just the administrative difficulties of rearranging it. I'm sure she would have been accommodated, but that... Um, she is going into a life of caring for a newborn, of having all of these things uh, taking over her mind and her attention. And meanwhile, she had already packed all the bar review material into her head. It was that day when it was there, it was clear, it was known. All the doctrine you have to learn for, to take the bar exam, to say, uh, no, I wanna take the test later. Well, how much later? And how are you gonna keep, uh, you've boned up for the bar exam. You're gonna re-bone up? You're gonna keep boning up every day? That's a difficult, and you know, you wanna pay attention to the baby. Get that test done while the stuff is still in your head 
and then move forward. I think that was a logical, normal decision, and I think it's consistent with the way women who give childbirth have related to their lives over time. Maybe not everybody, maybe not all of the time, but if you're, go if you're graduating from law school, you're looking to getting your law career started, and you've taken the bar review, you're taking the bar exam, uh, you know, you're barreling through these tasks and knocking them off. And the idea that, no, I'm just going to luxuriate in the childbirth and forget about everything else. Uh, well, um, I'm not surprised that a person chooses not to do that. I mean, uh, I'm impressed that she did it. I'm impressed that, she, that anybody graduates from law school, studies for the bar, takes the bar exam, often with other problems in their lives. They may have illnesses, they may have people who are suffering from various problems in their family, they may already have children to take care of, they may be working at a job, they may be helping various people in different ways, they may have mental conditions that make life hard for them, uh, various problems of their own, um, and, and, and yet people do it. There are, there are all kinds of uh, difficulties that people must deal with. But, uh, but this is such a nice one, and of course it's delightful to read about it in the paper, can see why the paper publishes it. It does seem special, and we do like the kind of heroes of ordinary life like this. It, it, it is inspiring to hear about it, but, uh, but I think that there are women and men all over the place struggling to uh, get the personal part of their life uh, accomplished in order uh, while they also further their career, move forward in their career, and uh, if you can't, if you do have to stop and take care of your personal life and put your career on hold for a while, that's a personal decision that you can make. But I do think that the extraordinariness of this is a bit, um, it, well, presented in the art. It, it, someone said, used the old phrase, uh, man bites dog, dog bites. This is a dog bites man story. You know, I don't think so. I'm having a little problem with the people in the comments here because... Uh, well, they want to celebrate this woman. I can certainly see why. It's a nice story, and you want to have a good uh, feeling about it. But um, uh, let's see. Well, let's see what uh, Timujin, Timujin said in the comments. He, he says, um, impressive and focused, possibly over the top, but nonetheless impressive. She'll land a job as a, how do we know what she'll land a job as? Oh, this is going to talk about her personally. I'm not going to read this out loud because I don't want to adopt anything about a specific ordinary citizen other than to say positive things about her. I'd rather talk about the general situation. Um, anyway, now let's see. I, should, I have to pre-screen the comments before, before using them. Let's see, I have one more, one more article today, and maybe I have some from yesterday that I didn't get to. Let's see, yesterday's podcast was called, which went up at 11.16 yesterday, was called We the Unimpeachably Great Hoopals. And I really wish I had titled it a little bit differently because I was trying to get the framework of We the People and then use the idea of hoopals, which was in the article about all the young dudes and uh, Mott the Hoople. And uh, I learned for the first time that hoopals are basically ordinary people. And hoople and people are similar words. And so I wanted to use the phrase, we the people, uh, from the Constitution. And then unimpeachably great had been a phrase that came from an article about art, that it becomes, according to some museum director, unimpeachably great because the museum hangs it on the wall. So I'm using hoopals and unimpeachably great and then putting it into the framework of we the people. And I call it we the unimpeachably great hoopals. And I just wish I had called it we the hoople unimpeachably great. In other words, I, I, I wish hoople had been, hoopals had been hoople, hoople without the plural so that it was more like people, so that the similarity to people was more visible. And then I wish I had moved unimpeachably great to the end of that phrase, so we the people would have been, a, would have sort of popped into your mind a little better. Anyway, that podcast went up at 11.16, so what went up after that I would include in this podcast. But all I have are two photographs, one 
from the sunrise at the Sunrise Cafe. That was the cafe post, showed a picture of the sunrise, nice little orangish pink ball, and then we see the the students out there in their, um, I guess they call them skulls. Are they called the rowboats that they use in the races, the rowing team? Uh, they were all out on the water and paused to look at the sunrise. So I have that picture. And then I have a picture of the woods. We went for a long walk in the woods. As I said in the comments, I, went, I have over 16,000 steps on my, my step counter machine and my iPhone. For yesterday, we walked the over what's called the Overload Trail in Blue Mounds, and Blue Mounds is a state park in Wisconsin. Really lovely place, about twenty a twenty minute ride, and it was a nice ride through uh, fall colors. It was a nice, uh, nice, nice color ochre, yellow, orangishness, rust, beautiful colors, and I took a few pictures. I put one picture up on the blog. The trees were mostly yellow that kind of fall color. I think yellow as a fall color is a little bit uh, undervalued. People want to see orange, bright orange and red. Uh, and then yellow is sort of like, oh, okay, yeah, it's fall color, but it's just yellow. But I think all the colors, including a nice dose of green still left in it, all the colors count. I like the fall colors. And you know, when they do fashion, like sweaters and woolly clothing for fall, and they put them in fall colors. They don't make them bright orange or bright red. They make them more ochre and a, a rusty orange or uh, a orangish brown. And, 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 a, and so the, those, those subtler colors are actually more appreciated as fall colors when they're used in fashion. But I think when people go out looking for leaves, they want to really get excited about the most brilliant colors. So they go for the red and the orange, the more uh, uh, bright colors, crayonish colors. Uh, but uh, the subtle fall colors are also quite nice. Anyway, we were out in, uh, there's a trail in Blue Mounds that is lesser noticed, but it's because it's on the other side of the street, but it's called the Overload. And what I like about it is you kind of go down so the woods is up kind of above you and you look up and the light comes through the trees and it's above you as you're walking down into these uh, gully valley-ish things. And um, that causes the place where you're walking to be nicely shaded. So when you look up, you see lots of light coming through the trees. So you have the experience of light but you're not walking in the glaring sunshine. I have a bit of a, an aversion to glaring sunshine in my eyes and on my skin. I'm a little sensitive to the light, so I like the subtler light. Maybe that's why the sunrise especially appeals to me. You get the dim light and then something very beautiful in the sun and in the way the sun reflects in nature, in the lake, in the trees, but uh, you yourself, as a, an organism, are not exposed to a lot of light. And I think a lot of the creatures feel like that too. The uh, crepuscular, the crepuscular animals that we see when we go out just before sunrise. And uh, we had a great conversation too. One of, the, one of the best ever conversations. You know, you go for a hike. Hopefully you don't fall off a mountain and die, but you go for a hike, you have some you have some you can have some great conversations out there it opens up opens up the mind to be walking to be in a different environment to be in under different light conditions so there was uh, there was that now i have um one more post and i'm going to have to mention slavery here so i'm going to end on a somewhat sad note but it's also about history this is an article in the guardian this went up at 9.54 today. Uh, article in The Guardian, Wreck of the World's Oldest Slave Ship at Risk of Destruction. BBC documentary shows fragile, sunken vessel in which enslaved Africans died is being destroyed by trawlers. So truck fishing with trawling is uh, messing up the ocean bottom. 
where there are wrecks. So it's the phenomenon of wrecking a wreck. I said a wreck is not a total wreck, but a thing that can itself be wrecked. And quoting from the article, 50 years ago, this wreck must have been a thing of wonder. Trawlers dragging nets for fish and scallops have bulldozed everything. Cannon have been dragged 30, have been dragged 300 meters away. If trawlers can throw two gun, two-ton guns around like matchsticks, then the wooden hull and small finds have no chance. Archaeologists call deep sea wrecks time capsules. This wreck looks like a war zone. Wrecks should be used as museums for memory and education. In this case, the future's chances of bearing witness to the horrors of the slave trade are fading fast. It's a double tragedy, close quote. So think of these things. There's lots of things on the bottom of the ocean floor, and they haven't been fully explored yet. They're, they haven't been made archaeological sites to uh, the full extent, and they're preserved. They're there. They could be used, even when they are things that we're not proud of, but are in fact um, wounded by and suffering from still the after effects of slavery, you could go down there and do an archaeological exploration of those um, deep sea wrecks. Sorry for all the alerts coming in on my, on my computer. That's what that ding is. Anyway, um, uh, but people who fish, we eat fish, we want the fish, um, but uh, this is the discord between the people who fish and the people who do archaeology and who care about the archaeology specifically of the wrecks of slave trade vehicles. So um, that's, that's a story there. Then um, all that's left on the blog is one more photograph, a photograph from today's Sunrise Run, where there was a lot of green but some very brilliant orange. Brilliant orange! <laughs> I like the subtle orange, but we also get the brilliant orange. And I gotta admit, the more brilliant it is, the more I like it, the more I'm likely to exclaim about it. But it's like a very exciting sunrise compared to a more subtle sunrise. At any given point, you get what you get. And maybe your life is like that too. You could have big, brilliant, exciting days and really love those days and want those days to happen. But there are also the subtler days, the more normal days the routine days, to use a word that came up in the discussion of Greta Thunberg. You can, you can learn to appreciate the very exciting things and the uh, completely ordinary things, which may be the most beautiful things of all. 